listening to the Hooked on Learning Podcast, where we discuss all things related to continuous improvement. And now to your host, Jesse Marka. Hello and welcome back to Hooked on Learning. Today we are going to focus on one of the final bird strikes related to crew resource management, and that has to do with incident command or decision making. So we're going to jump right into this one with a case study. And this case study is an airplane crash in Taipei. So listen to the audio and uh, and just paint this picture in your head of what was going out here, going on here. And then I'll talk to you about the relationship, kind of that segue from our last module from training to decision making with past performance being a major predictor for future performance. So without further ado, here's that audio. Crew members on the crash TransAsia flight shut off the plane's working engine. TransAsia flight GE-235 crashed into Taipei's Jilong River earlier this year, killing 43 people on board. Reuters reports that the crew had shut off the working engine after the other lost power. The TransAsia Airways flight that crashed in Taiwan in early February was carrying 53 passengers and 5 crew members, including 3 pilots. An analysis of the flight's data records show that 37 seconds after the plane took off from Taipei's Songshan Airport, the aircraft's number two engine went idle. Cockpit voice and flight data recorders reveal that when the pilots in the cockpit were notified of the issue, they discussed shutting down the aircraft's number one engine rather than the problematic one. The powerless engine completely stopped just as the pilots shut down the working engine, causing the plane to stall and crash. Reuters reports that sources close to the investigation say that human error was probably behind the decision to shut off the wrong engine. So again, that theme of human error. The threat was the the engine flaming out and losing power. Remember they said engine number two. The error was in the processing of that information and the wrong decision was made, ironically, by the captain, the person who's supposed to be steering the ship, the one most in tune and in control of the situation, is the one who broke the script and shut off the wrong engine, engine number one, causing the power the plane to have zero power during a critical flight time, which is takeoff. This plane then clipped the uh, bridge, basically the freeway bridge, and fell into a river, um, killing several people. Now, the strange part about this is this this pilot was in training the year prior, and he failed that training due to an inability to resolve engine flame out during takeoff. So, what the heck? How was this allowed to happen after it happening in training so many times? And the reason why is because we don't always fall back to our training. We fall back to our habits. So training in general needs to be focused on developing habits. So one of the exercises I like like to do to reinforce this is one that you've all done before, I'm sure. But if you feel like doing something right now and you have a paper and you have a pen or a pencil in front of you, you can redo this exercise. So I'm going to give you 17 seconds. 17 seconds to do something that you've done probably... Many times, albeit maybe with less stress, since the time you were in elementary school through your adulthood. And these are things that you should know and probably do know. And if you had 10 minutes or 20 minutes, 
you could probably figure this out, especially with a little bit of group work or especially with some limited resources like a map. Um, but sometimes too many resources, an atlas, if you will, provides too much information and it, it's overwhelming to the senses. So what is the exercise? It's the state capital exercise. So I'm going to give you 17 seconds to write down every state capital in the United States of America. So here you go. Ready, set, go. All right, 10 seconds. Five seconds. All right, everybody stop writing. Now that is 17 seconds. And hopefully everybody here got all 50 of those questions correct. Now if you didn't, fortunately nobody's life is on the line. But why 70, uh, why 17 seconds and why the state capitals? Well, state capitals do a good job of reinforcing our habits. So I'm willing to guess that everybody, especially if you've never done this exercise, that the first state capital you listed was probably the state capital in which you, um, in which state you live in. So Lansing is probably at the top of the list of most of us because it's what we know. It's what we fall back to. It's at the core of who we are in terms of citizens of the state of Michigan. If it wasn't Michigan, there's probably some other reason that you put the other one first. Perhaps you just recently got back from vacation. Perhaps you have a child that lives out of state or, uh, or a family member that lives out of state, and that state is also at the forefront of what you do. So maybe that's what it is. But now, why 17 seconds? Well, 17 seconds can be a matter of life or death in Black Sunday, FDNY, really uh, illustrated this in terms of the amount of time it took for six well-trained firefighters to jump out of what was essentially a fifth-story window in an apartment um, fire on January 23rd, 2005. So those six firefighters, unfortunately, some of them perished that day and then uh, later in time afterward. But such a bad situation and 17 seconds is important because that is what your turnout gear is rated to in flashover conditions you have 17 seconds to get the hell out of that building or risk second degree burns uh, globally until those burns become third degree burns so just something to be aware of uh, and something to focus on uh, for future situations to make sure that you have what it takes depending on the situation. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about developing mastery because there are so many skills we need to know in the fire service. Uh, and if we think about that same exercise or the same situation, I should say, with Black Sunday where you're forced to jump out of a window, whether it's one story or six stories, do you have what it takes? Have you connected those dots? Have window bales become more than just training to you? Is it a habit? Is it something that you mentally rehearse slash borderline obsess over in terms of the nuances associated with a window hang or a window bail? Because training versus habit is a very powerful thing. And when we talk about building habits, it's that old adage of you don't train until you get it right. You train until you get it wrong. There are so many 
pitfalls associated with window bales from not having properly stored equipment to you know just missing one little piece in that process. So uh, one of the ways that we help facilitate this critical decision making during non-discretionary times is through the use of checklists. So checklists land airplanes. Not because pilots don't know how to fly a plane, but because it's important that every piece along the way is checked off appropriately at the right time by the right people. If you don't know how to fly a plane, a checklist isn't going to get you through the situation. So in the fire service, we have we have our own checklists, and we should develop these checklists. Uh, the best example that we currently have is an initial radio report. It's a checklist. We check it off in order. If you don't know what an offensive fire is, sadly, the checklist is not going to help you. But provided you have those technical skills that are needed uh, based off of our positions and our careers in the fire service, then this checklist facilitates that for you. Um, Follow-up reports. Again, if you don't know what a 360 is, a checklist isn't going to help you. At least our checklist isn't going to help you. Our checklists are designed to facilitate the information the knowledge, the skills, the abilities that you already possess as a professional. Now, in aviation, they have um, a little bit more of a sophisticated checklist, and that's in the form of a quick reference handbook, or a QRH. So they take several um, situations, several threats, and they outline them in that QRH. So the pilot flying flies the plane. The pilot managing manages the plane. So... This is all part of decision-making and all part of crew resource management and all part of threat and error management. The threat and error management model uh, allows for us to take threats and classify them as unexpected threats and and expected threats. And this is straight from one of the flight manuals of one of the largest airlines in the world. They basically show a model that shows you the departure gate and the arrival gate and their goal is to get passengers from gate to gate safely and in a timely manner so they classify threats in two ways unexpected and expected and then they break up the flight into segments especially those high risk times so the first high risk um, time period of a flight is the time of climb so that's your departure and then you have your cruising altitude and that leads you to the next Uh, most critical time in flight, which is the time of descent and your um, arrival into that next airport. So basically, everything is predefined and pre-agreed upon with the flight crew. Uh, For example, at the beginning of the flight, there is a briefing. Very rarely do the same pilots fly with one another um, more than a, a couple of times a year, which might be surprising to people. But during that time, as that aircraft is taxiing down um, the taxiway and and making their way to the runway, they've already agreed on some key things. For example, if a threat emerges, i.e. a warning uh, light or a warning buzzer, while they're speeding down the runway, they have a, a critical benchmark in terms of if they're below that speed, they will power the aircraft down and apply the brakes and will never take off. However, once they reach that speed or exceed that speed, they must take off. And then the pilot flying will fly the plane and the pilot monitoring will monitor the plane. Now, 
number one on every checklist or threat and error management model through this major airline, and this is a common theme in aviation, number one is fly the air aircraft or fly the plane. So if you lose the ability to monitor the situation as a whole and do not take positive control of the aircraft or positive control of the incident, the plane will crash. It will fly itself into the ground or in the side of a mountain or into the ocean, whatever environment you are in. Nothing good will come from it. So as the flight crew, as the incident commander, bad things will happen. There will be unexpected and expected threats. The expectation we have is that you maintain positive control of the incident, i.e. you fly the plane. That's your job as an incident commander. Now, that allows you to focus on the aircraft, the incident as a whole, and allows the rest of our, our crew to be the pilots monitoring, for lack of better terms, and troubleshooting and diagnosing and carrying out all the other things that need to happen to gain control of that incident once more. And then in the aviation world, they split this into two different buckets. There's a bucket for threats that involve no time or no discretionary time, and that would be a fire situation, a smoke situation, some type of security breach, or medical emergency. And then everything else falls into another bucket, which is a bucket for situations that allow for discretionary time. And they use a model called TPC, Time, Plan, Communicate, versus for the no time bucket, it's just P and C, Plan, Communicate. And throughout all of this, the person who's flying the plane is responsible to aviate, navigate, and communicate that path with the rest of the crew. So that's a pretty important piece in terms of threat air management and not losing sight of the big picture. And, uh, you know, we've had tragedy strike close to home. And um, for another case study here with having a healthy respect for all things uh, that involve aviation and the safety of the passengers, we're going to just touch on Flight 255 momentarily. I'm going to play the beginning of, uh, of an episode on why planes crash as it relates to Flight 255, which departed Detroit Metro Airport. And here we go. Just listen up, and then we'll, we'll talk about this at the end. For investigators trying to solve a plane crash, the most important tool can be the black box. It records every detail in the cockpit. Look at this. Where's Charlie? And tells investigators about vital conversations. Yeah, it's starting to rain. Northwest 255, runway 3 center, clear for takeoff. But in the crash of Northwest Airlines Flight 255, I have never been to an accident of that scale. It wasn't what investigators heard on the tape. TCI was upset. It was what they didn't hear. It was checked. That would lead to an astonishing conclusion. So they mentioned that it wasn't what they heard on the black box, it's what they didn't hear on that flight recorder that led to an astonishing conclusion. And what they didn't hear on that flight was that the taxi checklist was performed. So that 
that taxi checklist was not performed properly. Thus, they did not catch that the flaps were in the wrong position. The flaps were basically in the uh, landing position, not in the takeoff position. Therefore, that, air that aircraft was doomed the second that they throttled down the runway. It was never going to generate the lift required to take off. So, of course, as they went further and further down the runway and pulled back on that flight control, they struck a light pole, struck the top of a building, and crashed um, where you see all the photos uh, in a really tough spot as well. And my dad worked for Detroit Metro Airport at the time as a maintenance worker and a heavy equipment operator, and I can tell you that nothing ever in his life would have prepared him for the duties that he was given after that. And I'd, I'd be lying if I said that that wasn't something that stays with the person forever uh, and stays with my dad and is hard for him to deal with. Uh, so that's, that is a high risk, high consequence thing. And, and decision making is not something that should be, uh, that should be discounted and we shouldn't skirt established systems such as checklists. We need to make sure we're doing things appropriately and that we can recognize these things and act on them immediately. And in the fire service, I like to call that priming the pump. And priming the pump is recognition prime decision making. Now it's based on pattern recognitions and it's designed for personnel that work in stressful conditions requiring immediate decisions and definitive actions. Does that sound like the fire service? I think so. You know, atropine or pacing offensive or defensive. Critical decision-making is essential to providing the highest level of fire rescue and emergency medical services right out of the first line of our mission statement. And one wrong choice could compromise the condition of the person we are called to help. It could jeopardize your personal safety or it could jeopardize the entire crew as a whole. Now, effective decision-making requires rigorous training and conditioning. Controlled drills and simulations allow members to gain experience making critical decisions during non-discretionary high-stress events, non-discretionary time. This is the premise of programs such as Blue Card, Playing Fast, and the First Five. The pump we are priming is not one on the side of the fire engine. It's the one on top of our shoulders. We are trying to prime our brains to operate um, in these non-discretionary time events. And um, the way that we do this or we can do this, is through recognition prime decision making. And that's because the challenges that we face are similar to the challenges faced by other professionals that work in stressful situations like the military, requiring immediate decisions and definitive actions. So in the 1980s, a team of researchers developed the recognition prime decision making process, or RPD, to assist people who work in such an environment. RPD is based on pattern recognition, and that is why we train the way we do. We're training to identify critical factors. The critical factors are the patterns. So RPD outlines how decisions should be made under pressure. Under pressure, time constraints, and shifting conditions. And with that, there are three main steps to recognition prime decision making. Number one is experience the situation. Pay attention to what is going on, right? Look, listen, and feel. Number two, analyze the situation. Have we been here before? Are there recognizable patterns? Are things going as expected? And number three, implement the decision. And implement the decision in a timely manner that allows for definitive action. And a lot of work is put in behind the scenes, training and honing our skills to the point where they are effective 
in these non-discretionary events. So simply put, we must be able to play fast in situations where second seconds matter. RPD is implemented during training sessions by identifying possible situations, developing scenarios, and simulating the various situations that we may encounter. One of the ways we do this is through the program of playing fast. And that's a training program that is aimed at identifying critical decisions and taking definitive actions. So participants are given photos of fireground incidents and are encouraged to make timely decisions based off of those incidents' critical factors. These are decisions that should be considered by every member operating on the incident. And there are three main points of emphasis for playing fast. Number one, are there saveable lives and or property? If so, where? Number two, are we offensive or defensive? And number three, where should the water go first? So um, that is a little bit behind how playing fast works. Now we typically will go over scenarios. Uh, we have um, scenarios where it's uh, multifamily. We have scenarios where it's single family. We have playing fast scenarios where they're defensive fires. We have um, all kinds of different resources available for playing fast. It's a good opportunity for you um, to go through with your shift members and it kind of serves as a point of calibration. You want everybody to be on the same page um, with everything in terms of what an offensive fire is and defensive fire and identification of the critical factors um, and so on. So recognition prime decision making is something that we'll continue to work on, something we'll continue to strive for. And, uh, you know, as in the training module, our work is never done. That's part of what keeps us fun. That's part of what keeps it challenging. And uh, that's part of why we chose this profession. So thank you for listening to the training piece. We have one more module to go on crew resource management, and that is physical health and mental health. So tune in, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hooked on Learning podcast. Until next time, be smart.